Here on Good Heavens, Wayne and I talk an awful lot about the glory of God. We've even helped co-author a book with the subtitle, How the Heavens Declared the Glory of God. But whatever do we mean by the glory of God? What exactly does the Old Testament mean? What is this glory? How are we to understand its explicit and implicit connotations? Literary scholar and renowned Christian apologist C.S. Lewis pointed out that God's glory is at once both revealed to us and hidden within each one of us. Quote, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love, with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love, as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him Christ also, ver latitat, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself, is truly hidden. End quote. The poet Gerard Manley Hopkins echoes Lewis in his poetry, noting that in Kingfisher's Fire, quote, The just man, justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings, graces, acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. End quote. In Psalm 19, we read that the glory in the heavens is a silent kind of contemplative glory, tacit, unspoken, there are no words. But at Jesus' baptism, there comes a specific audible voice from the heavens, the Father declaring, quote, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. End quote. The heavens elicit in us a sense of wonder, awe, and reverence. It is as if God has built into them the command for us to contemplate our existence within the universe. Just as King David did in Psalm 8. When he looked at the heavens, he wondered about God's love and care for him. We should go and do likewise. On this episode of Good Heavens, we talk with theologian and Hebrew scholar Dr. Thomas Egger, newly instated president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, from whom I had the pleasure of learning the wonders of biblical Hebrew. So come and contemplate anew the wonders of the glory of God with us. Here's Tom Egger. Well, it's great to be with you this morning, Dan. Uh, it's been a little while since we've chatted, and uh, my name is Tom Egger. I am the new president here at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, uh, Seminary of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, 
Um, our seminary has been around since 1839, but I've only been around here since 2005. So I've been <laughs> teaching here at the seminary uh, Old Testament classes for 16 years, and just in the last year was elected as the school's 11th president. So I've been having a lot of fun and and uh, um, running myself into the ground, getting up to speed with all the new uh, responsibilities that go with that. It is uh, a really exciting time for the church as we try to make our way in a changing culture on the heels of the shutdown and distancing from one another, um, but continuing to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news of his love and his saving work and his daily care for his people um, into the lives of people who know him and people who don't yet know him. And uh, so it's a, it's a great task to be at work in um, just in terms of myself, I'm originally from Iowa. My wife, Tori, and I have six children. Um, our, our third oldest gets married here in less than two weeks, so we're gearing up for that. And, uh, and, uh, and we live here in St. Louis, where the seminary is located. That's fantastic. It's so nice to hear, and you're reminding me of all your kids. And congratulations on your on your son getting married. That's fantastic. Um, Thank you. The most exciting thing that's happened in my life recently is I just worked on the front end suspension of my car yesterday. So, <laughs> but uh, I love being in two worlds. I love to be able to do mechanical things, and I love to be able to study God's word and and learn it so technically. But uh, you, ha- you and I, uh, what was it 2012? I was in your uh, exegetical Hebrew class. And uh, was you were such a, a good teacher and forever fascinated me with the language, the depth and the complexity and the wonder of the Hebrew language. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun having you in class and getting to know you. And uh, one thing that we share together is an appreciation for language. Of course, the language of the scriptures uh, is what I especially spend my day to day work in Hebrew and and a little bit less in Greek with New Testament. Uh, but um but I know you are a, a, a master of words and a great writer and, and just an appreciator of words. You really, um, you find a lot of delight in words and so do I. Words are powerful. And isn't it interesting yes. that God has, God has chosen to deal with us largely uh, through words. And uh, yeah. it's a remarkable, a remarkable thing that, uh, that the divine Lord of the whole universe uh, has chosen to have fellowship and communion with us, especially through words. That tells you something about their power and their their weight. Absolutely. After I left Concordia, I uh, got, as you know, I went to uh, Houston Baptist University and got my master's degree studying under Michael Ward, who is a C.S. Lewis scholar, and uh, learning Lewis through Michael made me appreciate even more just how powerful um, words are. I mean, it began with the the, the base I got at uh, Summer Greek and then Hebrew at, at Concordia, and then getting into Lewis. I mean, I don't think there was there was a careless word that Lewis ever wrote in anything that he's written. I mean, he was very careful in how he used words, and I think the same goes for Scripture, as you you pointed out, that there's, there's no wasted words in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no wasted words in the Bible in terms of the original languages. And uh, the, the the fascinating thing for me, Tom, that, that you introduced me to was this, was just how multifaceted 
uh, simple Hebrew words can be. Uh, the multivalent use of of different words and terms. And um, so the focus today, as my audience probably already knows, is one of those words, which is, and it, correct me if I'm not pronouncing this correctly, it's been nine years, chavod or kavod, uh, which means glory, right? Right. Um, and so, of course, this being a, a podcast about the universe, we talk a lot about the heavens declaring the chabod of God. But I thought it would be fascinating to talk to a Hebrew professor that I know uh, to help us unpack um, this uh, this rich concept of God's glory in the Old Testament. So what do you think of that word, Professor Egger? Yeah, well, uh, this word, um, kavod, we usually translate it in most of its occurrences um, in the Old Testament, we usually translate it um, with the term glory, not always, but it, it's an interesting word. It, it, comes from, it comes from a root word in Hebrew that has to do literally with weight. So, uh, so the verb kavad can mean to be heavy. Um, and then in kind of a derived sense, uh, it also, in fact, more often has the sense of being weighty or important. And along with the idea of something being heavy, it can also have the sense of being serious or hard or difficult. <laughs> so there's actually a, a, quite a range of meanings from, from really uh, positive meanings, you might say, um, basically the splendor and the greatness and the reputation and the exaltedness of God uh, and uh, or of or of people, um, or it can have the sense of uh, something being uh, um, difficult or or uh, dreadful, even um, or uh, when it's used of when it's used with subjects like uh, ears or eyes, it can mean to make them heavy in the sense of unresponsive or dull, unseeing or unhearing, or a heart being uh, uh, um, a heart being made heavy can have the sense of a heart being made um, stubborn. Uh, this is the term that's used for the hardening of one of the terms used for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Uh, mm. So, so the verb itself, that word group can have many different meanings, um, but when it's used of God, it usually, uh, it usually, in fact, I think almost exclusively is used in a very positive sense and is a word of uh, great trust and confidence and praise on the lips of God's people. Okay. So it's interesting, the, the overall connotations of the root word, as you're describing them, I'm thinking of, you know, I've, I've been in apologetics ever since leaving Concordia, and I'm thinking of a lot of the responses that I have received in the ensuing years from our book and from this conversation with skeptics that part of the kavod is that heaviness of the eye and the ear. And so when you talk about the heavens that declare the kavod of God, which is very positive, it engenders a heaviness of the ear and eye in people that don't refuse to see it. You know, there's that hardening. And so it, it's really interesting that the kavod of God uh, engenders this this 
negative kavod in human beings. That's fascinating to me as I, yeah, as you, as yeah. I hear you say that. Yeah. Well, it, it can, it can. Um, of course, the, the, um, the ideal outcome and what God's ultimately, what his uh, plan is for his people is that they will um, forsake their own kavod. Uh, and a part of, uh, I think a part of that hardening and that resistance uh, amongst uh, from humanity when they encounter the glory of God is their their um, slowness or uh, or opposition their opposition to acknowledging God's glory reveling in God's glory ascribing all glory to God um, we much we much prefer uh, to hold on to our own glory and there's a great humbling that comes. Uh, for man, on the one hand, in standing before the glory of God, in perceiving the glory of God, uh, at the same time, ultimately, um, God's plan for the redemption of humanity in Christ ends in us sharing in his glory. He, he brings us into his glory. He bestows his glory on us. Uh, we, uh, we become his glorious ones. And so there's an interesting interplay in the face of God's glory between uh, human humbling, but then ultimately human exaltation by God's grace. Mm, mm. And I didn't I, I didn't know if you knew this or not, but in uh, when I was at Concordia, uh, one of the things I did for recreational reading between my very rigorous courses was uh, reading about my favorite subject, the Apollo missions. And so I was reading uh, Michael Collins's autobiography. Michael just passed away uh, last year or earlier this year, I think, uh, carrying the fire. And I was thinking, it, it made me think, as I'm taking Hebrew and learning the languages, it made me realize just how much, like, we went to the moon. Yeah. Uh, the, the beauty of the moon, the chabot of the moon, you, or or the heavens themselves, you think of the, the, uh, the whole discipline of of space science, the billions of dollars that are spent, you know, all of those altars in Florida where we give our, our votive offerings, <laughs> you know, we put the rockets on the altar, we shoot them into the heavens and we want to know why and how, and we invest time and money and resources and people build careers out of studying the heavens. I think those are, would you, would you say that, that that kind of thing is a manifestation, one of the good manifestations of God's kabod, that, that it, that it, in a, in a sense, it's providing people with things that God is merciful to people in this stuff is so wonderful that we can't help but build careers, build rockets, investigate it, create a whole branch of science, and then even travel to the moon. That seems like a positive outflow of what's going on up there. Wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. There is, there is something about the heavenly bodies. Um, now, of course they literally have weight, <laughs> but, but they, they also, or at least mass, right? Uh, yeah. great mass. Uh, <laughs> right. But they, there is something about them in human experience and the way that we experience the heavens that is weighty, that draws us, um, that um, arrests our attention, uh, seizes our attention, and always has. So it seems like um, in every culture, there is a fascination with the heavens, attention paid to the heavens. There's a great glory there uh, being manifested. And, um, and in many cultures, um, in ancient times, and I think still today, uh, that actually even uh, moves over into worship. Um, and people have worshipped the heavenly bodies themselves, uh, and uh, and somehow associated them with 
the divine and, and even uh, as divine themselves. Of course, um, um, the scriptures testify that the heavens themselves aren't divine, but they are the, the work of the fingers and the hands of uh, the most glorious one of all, the creator of the heavens and the earth, uh, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, it's really his glory that's being manifested and reflected. And I think that the human fascination with the heavens, uh, the perennial human fascination with the heavens is a testimony to the glory of the one who has set them in place. Absolutely. It reminds me of um, the passage in um, Exodus 33. Moses wants to see God's glory. Show me thy glory. And I love God's response because it's no man can see my face and live. And I think of, you know, we went to the moon, you need you need a you need a suit uh to protect yourself from the chabod of the moon, right? Uh, it, yeah. that you if you want to encounter the heavens firsthand, you have to have your priestly clothing on, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Otherwise you're going to you're not going to last long. There's there I think there's a parallel there. Yeah, yeah, there that's that's an interesting analogy and uh yeah, your mention of Exodus 33, that really, um, in my mind, that scene really illustrates the paradox, again, that's at work when we think about God's glory. And so, well, first of all, what is this glory that we're talking about? Um, in Exodus 33, as Moses goes back and forth speaking with God, and the scene is, the people of Israel have been rescued from Egypt and they're out in the wilderness and God has given them good laws. And the very first one of those laws is you shall have no other gods and don't make an image of anything in the heavens or the earth or under the earth and bow down to it and worship it. You're to worship me alone. That's the very first command. And yet they have very quickly departed from, um, from trust in uh, Yahweh, from trust in their God has rescued them. They've made a golden calf idol, bowed down to it, worshiped it, danced around it, made sacrifices to it in worship. And God is incensed. Uh, He is not going to share his glory, his honor, his reputation with this uh, golden calf. And so he has threatened to destroy the people, but he's also put this man in front of him. God has called Moses to be a mediator and an intercessor for the people. God has placed Moses right in front of him, you might say, for this very purpose. And Moses pleads for the people that God would have mercy. And it's, it is the first instance in the Old Testament, ex- explicitly in the stories of the Old Testament, the first incidence of God forgiving sin. Now, of course, God's been merciful to people all along in many ways, but this is the first time it actually talks about God is forgiving their sin. And, and Moses, he is blown away that this marvelous God, who, is he, who he has encountered uh, in, in the fire and the storm and the cloud and the and thunder and the lightning and the smoke of Mount Sinai, um, he's amazed that this great, weighty, glorious God is being so merciful to his people. And so he asks, Show me your glory. He wants to see a full glimpse of it. He perceives there's something, there's something even greater than sort of the awesome phenomena of this God. And that thing that's greater ultimately is 
his deep character of compassion, love, and mercy. And, uh, and so he prays uh, that, that God can see his glory. He, he prays, show me your ways. And God says, I will, cause, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you, and I will declare my name. And I think all four of those terms give us a sense ultimately of what God's glory is. It's, it's his reputation and splendor, the, the term glory proper. It's his name, it's his goodness, and it's his character, his ways. And so he passes before Moses, and what he actually shows Moses is just, he doesn't really show him anything visually. He speaks, he, pro- he proclaims his own name, and it's all about his forgiving ways. So on the one hand, God's glory is this untouchable, transcendent, you better back off kind of glory. Uh, and uh, that puts us in our place, you might say. Um, um, on the other hand, uh, the, the ultimate height, you might say, or even the ultimate depth of God's mercy, the, the weightiest weight of God's mercy finally becomes the fact that this transcendent, all-glorious God is willing to come near to sinners like you and me and to love us and forgive us, redeem us, share his glory with us once again. And uh, it reminds me exactly of, uh, of Jesus' words in John 12, where he knows the time of his cross is coming near. And he says, uh, he says my heart is greatly troubled, uh, but what shall I say? Uh, Father, save me from this hour. For this very reason, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And in John's gospel, the ultimate glory of God is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. So there's this, this great coming together and uh, um, this both and of God's glory. It's in, it's in all of his, you might say, greatness and impressiveness, his great power, great wisdom, uh, great uh, creativity and handiwork um, that we see all around us and at work in our lives and and particularly, as we were saying, displayed in the heavens. Um, but it's also his willingness to come near to us in meekness and mercy. Uh, and that's seen especially in Jesus Christ and especially in his cross. And it, it is exactly what, uh, though the word does not appear in Psalm 8, what you express is exactly David's wonder. When I consider thy heavens, the works of thy yeah. fingers— the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and or a little lower than God and has crowned him with majesty and honor. I see what you just say there in, in David's prophetic utterance as he's contemplating the cosmos. He comes very close. And I, I've read even some commentators say that th- there's hints of a messianic there's messianic allusions when he talks about being crowned with glory and honor in the Psalms. But but even so, yeah. there's there's this idea of God and man. God, why are you mindful yeah. of me? You've made these you've made the heavens. They're glorious. That's a great insight. Great insight. He and and the book of Hebrews uh connects that passage to Jesus Christ specifically. But we we wouldn't say that the psalmist is only talking about Jesus Christ in those words. Uh, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this. He's the one who's really been crowned with glory and honor. But in Jesus Christ, all 
all who belong to him are, are caught up ultimately in the end to share in his glory. And uh, that psalm expresses this beautifully, doesn't it? We look at the heavens and we think, wow, what am I? I am nothing. I am insignificant. I am tiny. Um, I am uh, just but a breath. I'm here and I'm gone while these heavens continue to make their circuits. Uh, And at the same time, those heavens draw our attention to the one who made them. And as we reflect on the God who made them, we are reminded of the special place that humanity has been given by that creator and the, and the plans that God has for even me, uh, even me, a sinner, a mortal, uh, uh, I'm not even six feet tall, <laughs> but uh, so I'm not much compared to the moon or to Jupiter or to, right, the, or to the great stars. Um, but I am because God has been mindful of me. And Jesus has come to share my humanity. God himself has come in the flesh to share my humanity and to win for me everlasting glory. Uh, There's the passage from Daniel, that beautiful passage uh, about uh, that kind of looks forward to resurrection. Those who sleep, uh, uh, those who sleep uh, in the dust of death will arise and, uh, and they will shine like the stars forever and ever. This idea that, uh, the heavens even are a glimpse of the splendor and the glory that awaits um, lowly sinners um, in the inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. And you can see this in the best science writers and science popularizers. I think of specifically Carl Sagan, who I would say, um, with all due respect to his legacy and who he was as a person, that he suffered from something of the the heaviness of ear and eye because he he would conclude, as you said a moment ago, as many scientists and secularists have concluded, that we're insignificant, but they stop there. And so the kabod, the heaviness, the negative kabod is really laid on heavy. We're insignificant. We're small. We're, we're in this vast universe. We don't mean anything. We're, we're accidents of nature, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very heavy thing for a human soul to hear and to bear. But yet Sagan would also say that, that he got the impression of reverence and awe from contemplating the cosmos. And he even said in the 1980 TV series, he said, if we must revere something— it makes sense to revere the sun and other stars. Why? Because in modern secular cosmology, we came from supernova detritus. That's where our atoms and molecules came from. So without a creator, it, when you follow these conclusions to their logical consequence, Tom, it's very tragic. It's very heavy. Uh, a heaviness of heart, a heaviness of soul. You'd mentioned at the beginning about our adjusting to the pandemic life, you know, where Science tells us to isolate from one, or one another uh, for the sake of, of biological survival. But it has absolutely nothing to say about the heaviness of heart and soul that have come about from being isolated. It did, it did not address. There was no balm from science coming f- to us to how to address our melancholy, how to address our despair, how to address the heaviness of our hearts from being apart from one another. And I think that's the tragedy of modernity. We wear this heaviness of heart 
of mind, of eyes and ears. It is a terrible kabod. But yet, it seems, as you said just a moment ago, that when we look to the heavens, that they're always there to remind us. It's like they have this built-in mechanism. Ask yourself who you are. (laughs) Contemplate your existence. It seems to be embedded and built into the very fabric of the cosmos. Because every time NASA wants to do a, a, a project and they appeal to Congress for money, they always say, well, we want to know our origins. We want to know where we came from. We want yeah. to know what... Isn't that interesting? Yeah, we want to know where we're going, where we came from, how we got here, who we are. And they're looking to the heavenly bodies for answers. And it's it's partially correct in one sense that, that you are to to inquire after the glory of God. That That is kind of the, the beginning of wisdom, this fear and awe and wonder that, that, that in, excites us. That is the right place to begin, in a sense. But but thinking that a planet of gas and dust is going to give us the answer is is that that negative kabod. We 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 think that you know the gas and dust out there is going to tell us a story. We intuitively know it's going to tell us a story because it is a story in one sense. But we're yeah. not we're not turning the secularism isn't turning the page and, and looking at the other part of the story. What is this about the heavens that make me contemplate myself and want to spend billions of dollars knowing what it's all about? I think so so I love how you're tying together this idea of Jesus and and God's kabod because I think somebody like a Carl Sagan or anybody that, that that derives this is is explicitly conceding the truth of what the apostle Paul says in Romans 1 that right. God has right. shown us his his invisible attributes and one of those being his kabod yeah, just just up the road from Concordia Seminary here at Washington University, uh, there's a, a professor there. She's written a book. Uh, a wonderful lady, I've heard her speak. Uh, her, she has a great name. Her name is Ursula Goodenough. Uh, <laughs> wow! And uh, so this fantastic name at the bottom of the cover of the book, and at the top, the title is "The Sacred Depths of Nature." The Sacred Depths of Nature, and uh, and in that book, she basically tells the story of growing up with religious faith, uh, losing it in her young adult years, especially um, in, in the course of the study of science and adopting really a, a materialist view of, of the world around her. And, and yet realizing as, as, uh, as she went on in life that she really was missing something uh, in having left religious devotion behind. And, and like you mentioned with Carl Sagan, she really began to reflect on how she could have, in a sense, a religious connection with the universe um, simply by recognizing the way that she fits into the universe and seeing the universe's great story as kind of one great story. So this unifying sense of belonging and transcendence in that sense, transcending the self through this, uh, through this great sense of oneness and belonging. And yet, that is, not, that, that is a very distinct kind of hope and uh, a distinct religion from, uh, from the religion revealed to us in the Bible, which reveals to us a personal creator who actually spoke to Adam and Eve and continues to speak to us, and who uh, the Bible says uh, um, knew us each individually as we were being formed in the womb. Uh, He calls his sheep by name. 
Um, he knows how many hairs are on our, each of our heads, and he loves each of us in Jesus Christ. He has a plan for each one of us in Jesus Christ. And so um, you talked about uh, uh, the, the weight and the melancholy and the despair that can come from, from a sense of meaninglessness and insignificance. We, I look at the heavens and the enormity of the universe, and I can say, you know, what am I? Uh, and I'm totally insignificant. My life is meaningless. It doesn't really matter uh, whether I suffer or don't suffer, whether I work hard and accomplish things or whether I don't, uh, whether I um, am connected to other people uh, in joyous uh, human fellowship or not. None of those things really matter uh, because in the end, the universe just goes on and I don't. Uh, it's, and, and we can think that. And what's going to be, like you said, what's going to be the salve for that? Is it simply the notion that, well, at least I'm a part of something bigger than me uh, in the end, even if I and my individuality uh, am snuffed out? Or, uh, Or is the salve the God who created this universe and started this story is still an active part of it? And he knows you. He knows me, Tom Egger. He knows you, Dan Ray. And he has claimed you. He has a future for you. And we together will continue on in joy and communion and uh, fellowship with our creator, enjoying uh, his renewed creation forever uh, as, as his individual children known by name. I think that shapes how we understand ourselves. It exalts us individually um, in a proper way. Uh, and it also affects the way that we view and value one another. Um, uh, the person beside me is not just someone who has value only in the broader scheme of things as a little speck in a giant story. No, the person beside me has value because God knows them by name he fashioned them, and he has plans for them forever uh, in Jesus Christ. He will one day raise them from the dead, and he will do so by calling them by name out of the tomb. That's a pretty outrageous claim that Christianity makes, but Jesus has promised it. And so um, we stake everything on those promises. Mm. And it's interesting, Tom, that the story of, of that professor at Wa- Washington University it, it is it is typical of a lot of more thoughtful secularists today to make that kind of uh, argument. They recognize a transcendence, but stop short of of following it to its logical conclusions. That that it's all just nature. It's a kind of panentheism or a pantheism of some of some kind. Right. It's, um, and it's it's tragically insufficient, I think, because uh, so many people like Sartre and, and Camus. This existential idea that we we are beings that want to have meaning, but yet, as as Sartre concludes, the universe doesn't give us justification for there being any meaning, and so we're left to this radical existentialism of of uh, Camus, where where everything is just indifference and apathy, and nothing really matters, and uh, it, it's 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 finally just tragic. But I I I find it fascinating that that the best astronomers or the best cosmologists or the best theologians or the best storytellers uh, all are wordsmiths 
that that part of the glory of God is the logos of God. That that the logos of God is is Christ in the flesh to us. The the as the hymn says, veiled in flesh, the incarnate deity, and and yet as you said at the beginning, he communicates to us through words, through poetry, through syntax and parable. And but but part of the the, the heart of the of the linguistic exchange between God and us is God using nature as part of parable and story. A lot of Jesus's uh, teachings are focused on nature. And so I love how Lewis looks at it and and I love how that considering nature is a kind of word, a kind of poetry, a kind of expression of divine speech because that's how Genesis tells us God created everything. Let there be Tom, let there be Dan, let there be moons, let there be stars. And God said it and it was so. And so we have this, like Hebrew itself, this multi-layered meaning. It's not just the moon, right? It's not just rock and dust. Stars aren't just balls of gas. That's, it's a layered poetic meaning that, that emanates from the mouth of God himself in, in creation. And so we read the transcript of nature and are fascinated by it. Um, and I see this. I just interviewed uh, Stephen C. Meyer from the Discovery Institute last a couple of weeks ago. And and he's very articulate in showing through cosmology and biology how of God's design. And yet, despite his well-researched argument, skeptics and atheists will, will stop short. Uh, they'll say something like, well, it it's apparently designed. It, it looks designed, but it's not really designed. Here's why. And so there's that heaviness again, Tom, that, that terrible heaviness where you're telling me that the design I see in an owl in a star, in, in, in DNA, is illusory, right? So, so if, if design in nature is illusory, what, is that, what are the implications for, for my own designs, for my own meaning, for my own purpose, for my own word making? You know, if, if nature, which is so gloriously beautiful, is a fluke, is, is illusory, it doesn't, it's not really designed, what does that say about human intelligence? It, it, it denigrates ourselves. To, to empty the universe of God, I think, empties ourselves of ourself, as being image bearers, right? Yeah, yeah. All all these created things, I think, uh, to, to reflect on the, the intersection between words and then things, or words and the reality around us, it really is fascinating, isn't it? That God calls things into being by his word, but, his, but all of these created things, um, on the one hand, as we look at them, uh, just through the eyes of experience, it does seem like, Finally, perhaps they're all meaningless. Uh, really, is there any lasting value or transcendent value in any of the things around us or in ourselves, like you said? Um, and yet, um, look at the way that all of these things around us call forth words. They call forth wonder, acknowledgement. They have their own glory as they reflect God's glory. Uh, and they call forth words. Think of all of the words that have been spilled um, in reflecting on the heavens and what they are and what their significance is. Scientific words, poetic words, mythological words, uh, um, they, they garner our attention and they call forth words. Or all of, the, all of the words of poetry and art just describing the world around us. Um, 
or the visual depictions of, in art of, uh, of the, the world around us, which is sort of like painted words and interpretations of the things. Um, but all of it is signaling, I think, all of it attests that there really is value to these things. Um, um, even though, even though um, you know, philosophically, we would have to concede that by themselves, they're meaningless. Um, so as they're attached to the creator and his original purposes, um, we can perceive that, uh, that there really is glory, meaning, uh, weight, significance to, uh, to the world around us. And certainly that's the Christian story that the whole cosmos is redeemed in Christ and will one day be renewed. It's valued by him, um, his, his life of ministry was, uh, was one of restoring, uh, not, not only teaching in parables, but, uh, but feeding people with actual bread, um, stilling storms, um, uh, curing diseases to restore bodies, and, uh, um, and so forth. And so uh, he, he came into the physical world. He values this world. He has redeemed this world. And, uh, and there really is rich meaning all around us, not only in human beings, but, but in the cosmos, in, the, in nature around us. Uh, there's, there's great significance and meaning when we, when we acknowledge it as the handiwork and the, the, uh, the stage on which God is unfolding his goodness uh, before us, you might say. Yeah, it brings to mind... Um... Job's despair in the opening chapter after he gets his time to speak in Job 3 that he is not you know he's tempted to curse God but he he what he ends up doing is cursing the day of his birth and cursing uh you know the light of the day of his birth there's I think and, and you pointed this out to me that Job is one of the most difficult books to translate in terms of Hebrew and in chapter 3, there are a multitude of different Hebrew words used for darkness. And so Job is is calling down or calling on darkness to cover the light that 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 was his birthday. And he, he says, let those who are prepared to rouse Leviathan curse the day of my birth. And there's these, there's these um, curses about, about God's light. And so the first thing that God does when he does respond to Job, I find it fascinating that he begins with creation. Where were you, Job, when I created the, the foundation of the earth? Can you guide a constellation in its season, the Maseroth, whatever that might be? Um, and so he, he offers this corrective. And, and so in order to address Job's despair, he begins with creation. And, and I think if, if, if we understand Old Testament epiphanies, that I've always, you know, it, it used to be when I was a new Christian, I used to struggle with, is God just yelling at somebody from a cloud, you know, in, in terms of the Old Testament? Is this just an angry voice from the sky? Is it a big finger coming out of the cloud, kind of like Monty Python or something like this? Right. What, What is the way and manner in which God of the Old Testament is appearing to people and having conversations with people? And I think it may have been at Concordia or where I had this epiphany of how God appears to us pre-incarnately. And so the dialogues of God with Moses or Job or, or anybody is, is, is the pre-incarnate, as I understand it, in most cases. Yeah, yeah, the Christian art has 
has a rich tradition of depicting <clears throat> those key Old Testament conversations between God and his people, that it, especially the scenes that we have, we have a hard time picturing it in our mind. Just like you say, what were the mechanics of this exactly? Right. How did this look on the ground? And in the tradition of Christian art, uh, those scenes are oftentimes pictured as, for example, when God summons Adam and Eve and speaks to them in the Garden of Eden after the, after the uh, first sin. Uh, it's a picture of Jesus Christ standing there in the garden speaking with Adam and Eve. Or the burning bush, a picture of Christ himself standing basically uh, in the flames of the burning bush and addressing Moses. Um, this idea that God has always had the capacity and the intention to reach out and communicate to his people through his word, and that the divine son, the second person of the Trinity, uh, is, is uh, his agent of reaching out, you might say, uh, his agent of communi- uh, communicating. And uh, uh, that, that gets into mysteries that are... Uh, too deep for us to plumb uh, completely, of course, but, uh, but it is a fascinating notion that um, God is not completely other from this world. He is other, and he, uh, he is sufficient in himself. He was before all created things, and yet um, there's this great wonder and mystery that in the fullness of time, he enters into the creation. He actually becomes a man. He has flesh and blood like we have flesh and blood. And uh, what a testimony to his love and his commitment to us. And, uh, and he's been reaching out and speaking to us in ways that anticipate that from, uh, from the Garden of Eden. Right. And so to, to wrap this up, Tom, I want to I reflect a little bit about just briefly about when Jesus does come, uh, in Matthew especially, Matthew is very kingdom oriented in his language, in his gospel. Uh, I think it's some 70 times or more that, that the heavens or heaven is mentioned. And of course, Jesus begins what is arguably his most well-known sermon is the Sermon on the Mount, where he begins with, you know, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. It's ton oranon, I think in the Greek, the, the heavens, the plurality of the heavens. And then blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so here is the creator of the heavens and the earth saying that those who are heavy of heart and spirit will, will those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, who have been burdened by the, the, the negative cassette of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, if you are poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of the heavens. If you are meek and mild and gentle, yours is the kingdom. Yours, you know, you get the heavens and the earth, a recreation of the heavens and the earth. But here is the one incarnate, the one who has created all this, coming to us uh, meek and mild um, as a savior of mankind, as a servant to mankind, setting aside his kavod, as Paul says in Philippians, um, to become one of us, to become sin for us, he who knew no sin, offering us the kingdom of the heavens, uh, you know, greater, as he says about Jonah, greater, there's one greater than Jonah who is here, you know, um, that, that, that the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. I'm here. The one who made all of this is here with you and among you. And I think of how Jesus began his ministry in Matthew uh, 3, where there is an audible voice from the heavens, you know? Yeah. There, there, in Psalm 19, you get this general silent 
declaration, right? There is no voice. But then in Matthew 3, you get an audible, specific voice about what the Chabot is saying. What is the Chabot? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Yeah, that's fantastic. And um, uh, yeah, I I love those references to um, the Beatitudes of Jesus and his is describing, this is what my reign will be. This is what my reign will bring for you. This is what it will mean for me to be your king, your gracious king, and for you to uh, inherit from my hand all that I have in store for you. It ultimately is inheriting the, the heavens and the earth. Um, we, we live in this world, and as pilgrims uh, in, this, in this world, in this cosmos, we look around and we think, how do I fit into this? We we never have a full and satisfying sense of how do I fit into this world? How do I relate to this world? Um, our hearts, our, our sinful hearts, unfortunately, are wired in such a way that we're never content with how much we get of this world. <laughs> um, no matter how much wealth comes our way uh, or no matter how much prestige comes our way, the human heart always wants more. And, uh, and yet the day is coming. He's inviting his people, be patient and wait, trust in me. And the day is coming when my kingdom, my reign will be manifested in its fullness. And, and you will inherit the earth and you will be a part of the kingdom of the heavens, the reign of, of the heavenly king uh, to whom the heavens and earth belong. And in that day, we will really have a sense of how we fit in uh, to the world. It will be perfectly clear and satisfying and uh and things will be made right and in the meantime i love i was just scanning down in the sermon on the mount beyond uh the beatitudes where you're quoting to jesus talking about letting our light shine before men doing good deeds in other words doing the work god has called us to do and loving others and as we do that jesus says Others will see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. And what an unbelievable promise to talk about, uh, to talk about the assurance that life is not meaningless. God who is glorified by the awesome uh, works of the heavens and all of nature around us and humanity in its impressiveness and splendor. God has glorified in all these great ways is also glorified. A part of his great glory is our simple lives of service, as, as meager and faltering as they are, and, and the simple acts of love uh, that we do for others. It actually contributes to the glory of God and, and helps people to see the glory of God. What an unbelievable privilege uh, God has given us by his grace that our lives can mean something um, as we bear his name in the world and, right. and live as his children. It's fantastic. It's exactly, it's a nice closing end to what you said about Daniel, that those who turn many to righteousness will be like the stars that shine forever and ever. And here we have it in Jesus's very words. You are the light of the world. Yeah. Jesus says in John eight twelve, he's the light of the world, but he also shares that with us through us. Uh, he has illuminated us, if you will. He has given us this light. It comes from him. We are dependent upon the light of the I am to be lights in the world. And I think it was in C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory, where he says, you have not met a mere mortal. 
right? You joke and eat and laugh with immortals. Yeah. You will live forever. And so your words, your actions, your deeds, they are all weighty because you are influencing someone toward one direction or another. And so Paul, that's why he closes out and says, you know, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. First Corinthians 10 31. Yeah. Awesome. So, um, closing thoughts, Tom, it's, it's, uh, just about time to wrap up here. I really appreciate your time. It's been fantastic. We could go on for this with, for hours and hours. Uh, this is going to be, uh, I, I'm so encouraged by this. I've had a wonderful time, uh, chatting with you. Final thoughts. Well, ultimately the glory of God, uh, um, we've talked so, about so many dimensions of God's glory and, uh, and the satisfaction and the meaning and the delight and the wonder and the praise that it can call the words that it can call forth from us as we encounter God's glory in, in so many dimensions, but absolutely the height and the depth of God's glory is the, the only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who's been at the father's side from eternity um, by whom and for whom all things were created and uh, how remarkable it is that this all-glorious Son of God, um, who shares the glory of the Father and the glory of the Spirit um, eternally, how remarkable it is that He loves us and that He has um, He has created us and redeemed us and promised us an eternal sharing in His glory, um, and. Uh, the day will come when we will see him face to face. And then our, our little uh, stumbling and hacking around conversation about what glory is, <laughs> we will, uh, then we will really know. Right. This is, this is glory. Right. Uh, to see face to face the one who loves us so. And uh, to see his, his nail marked hands and feet and to just behold his majesty and love forever. Uh, that will be a day. Yes, it will be. We'll wrap up on that. Thank you so much, Tom. Uh, president, newly crowned president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Professor Tom Egger, uh, talking about the glory of God today. Thank you so much, Tom. It has been uh, a blessing for me, very edifying. Thank you for your, your insight and wisdom. Yeah, thanks for your thanks for your great insights, Dan. I uh, always enjoy chatting with you. Always very stimulating. <laughs> All right.